Hi friends and welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And today is a bit of a bonus episode. We've just reached an end of a section in Matthew when Jesus has been redefining the meaning of murder for us. And I've noticed that it's a Friday and we're going to be launching off a new section over a couple of studies, two or three, which will be looking at the issue of sexual sin. So I thought it might be good to just delay that for a couple of days and commence off on that study on Monday morning. So today's bonus episode is some teaching from the archive, if you like, a message I gave on the 9th of April 2016 at a Baptist church in St. Anne's-on-Sea in Lancashire, where I spoke about three possible reactions that people might have when they're confronted with the gospel message, particularly the resurrection of Christ. I do hope you find it helpful, so bye-bye for now. Chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. You'll find it on page 1113. Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas in our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. 
God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. Thank you, Hilary. You'll notice in the, uh, the notices the, the message was different. Paula came in as she does and was looking over my shoulder the other day, and she said, that's better for Easter. So, but what we're going to consider this morning is three reactions to the resurrection of Christ as revealed in that scripture. So let's just bow our heads before we do that. Sovereign Lord, we give you thanks for this is indeed your sacred word. And we ask, Lord, that we give thanks that the same spirit who inspired Luke to write down this account and led the inscription, we give you thanks that that same spirit is here amongst us this morning. And we'd ask humbly, Lord, that that by your spirit you would apply what you would wish into our hearts. Let us, let him who have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Easter, as you know, is coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, I've just wondered what your reaction is to the Easter break. Despite the chocolates industry's best efforts, I would say most people in the UK... There's probably not quite so much excitement about Easter as there is about the other big holidays. People look forward to Christmas, of course, mainly because they get gifts and uh, for some it's a time off work. Many people can take just a few days, maybe three or four days between Christmas and New Year and can have a break of perhaps a week or even ten days. But when it comes to Easter, from that perspective, they've probably not got as much to look forward to. You just get a couple of official days off work, and if you want to take the whole week off to be with your family, then you've got to do that in your, in your own time. For some, Easter, of course, represents the end of winter and the beginning of spring, and I must admit that aspect of it always feels good. But for some out there, and perhaps for some younger ones amongst us this morning, Easter's all about the chocolate, isn't it? Chocolate eggs chocolate bunnies, boxes of chocolates. However, for a small group of people in this country, Easter is primarily about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The minister of my old church in Northern Ireland that I grew up with in Bangor, he told me about his previous church that he pastored in England, and they had an, an Easter morning t- tradition of holding a dawn service at around 6 a.m. in the morning. I wonder how that grabs us, <laughs> how we feel about that. He also told of one year his, his organist, a lady who played at our wedding, her alarm didn't go off and she didn't make the service. So the following year, he rang her at 5 a.m. And he said, Christ is risen. I trust you are this morning. So there are many different reactions to Easter. We're not planning a dawn service, by the way. But in Acts 17, which we had read for us beautifully a moment ago, we can see that there were, even then, several different ways that people reacted to the message of the resurrection, which, of course, is what we celebrate at Easter. Reactions which, in the same way, when people presented with the truth of the resurrection of Christ, we still often see. But let's just take a moment and step back and look at the background to what's going on here before we get into the facts of the way the people reacted to what Paul said to them that day. If we could have the second overhead, please. Some of you may be familiar with the city of Athens and the Acropolis with the Parthenon on it. And this is the setting for what's going on here. You may be familiar with that image as it is today, but that building was standing there 2,000 years ago and is there at that particular time in better condition perhaps than today, but is there at this point of, of what's happening and is described for us in the book of Acts. If we step back a bit from the view, you will see the Parthenon sits on a smaller hill just below the main hill that acts as a backdrop to the city. And it's on that smaller hill, as what referred to is going on and what has been talked about at the Areopagus, the greetings of the people who like to talk. Eusebius records the fact that the people of Athens love to talk, and then he ironically puts in brackets, they did little else. So that gives you a little bit of an insight into what Athens was like in those days. This is some, in some translations, this hill is referred to as Marl's Hill. So it's a hill in the shadow of a larger hill, and it's in that area that the thinkers, in quotation marks, held their court. But you need to know a little bit, have a little insight of what Athens was like and what it really meant in those days. At that point in time, Athens was the intellectual center of the world. In the recent past, prior to Paul's visit, It was a native city of names that will be familiar to you of people like Plato and Socrates, and it had become the adopted home of Aristotle, the three great pillars of Greek philosophy. Rome, of course, was the political capital of the Western world, or the the known world at that time. But in Paul's day, Athens stood and represented the greatest university city in the world. It was the center of all the world's intellectual thought. But as well as that, it was also the artistic capital of the known world. It was without doubt that in Paul's day, Athens was viewed by many as the greatest city in the world, even eclipsing Rome. It was the artistic capital of the world at that time also. It had many great artists, poets, writers, orators, all from the greatest the world had never known up to that point. But its streets, 
Its streets were filled with sculptures. It had some of the largest and greatest sculptures in the world, and the building contained some of the greatest paintings and the greatest frescoes in the world that were known were, could be seen at that time. It had some of these fantastic buildings like the Parthenons and others, which of course meant that many of the world's greatest architects lived there as well. But the big thing is, it was the religious capital of the ancient world. There were hundreds and hundreds, probably over a thousand temples within the city, and the streets were literally littered with sculptures depicting myriads, hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands, of different gods of the ancient world. Paul arrives and looks at these temple buildings and all the sculptures and what's going on, and that's the backdrop. It is said that there were more statues of gods in Athens than in the rest of Europe combined. The population of Athens at this time is estimated to be just over 10,000 people, but there are 30,000 sculptures of gods in the city. Think about that. There are gods everywhere, and Paul sees this, and his response is to say this city is wholly in the grip of idolatry. So Paul does, does what he always does when he visits a new city. He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jewish leaders of the day. Interestingly, it says he reasoned with them. As a matter of fact, the word translated as reason doesn't suggest that he had an argument with them. He has a dialogue with them. He has a discussion with them. This is what we talked about last week. They asked questions and he gave answers. And that's what I would seek and desire for us to be able to do in this place. The place Paul goes to do this initially, the text tells us, in the, mar- in the marketplace. He's been to the synagogue and reasoned and discussed with the, the, the Jewish leadership. But then he goes to the marketplace, where he can meet the ordinary man in the street, and perhaps even some of the philosophers. Now, the text draws attention to the fact, and there's a reason for this, that there were two particular types of philosophers who were known to engage in the marketplace. It was the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, we need to talk for just a moment about what those group of peoples believe, because it gives us a context to what Paul says to them. So if we firstly consider the Epicureans, well, the easiest way to describe their philosophy philosophy is to say that they believe that everything took place by random chance. They also believe that death was the end of everything. They believed there were gods of sorts, but these gods were remote and they did not care or they did not intervene with mankind or with the world. They also believed that the attainment of pleasure was the high point, the main aim of mankind. Now, some have called this the playboy philosophy, but that's probably rather simplistic. They were indeed the precursors of what later became known as the pleasure principle. But this definition of pleasure doesn't just mean worldly pleasure and material pleasure or sensual pleasure and perhaps the way it would in our mind. The high point they believed with pleasure was to be able to experience the evasion of pain. Some might suggest these are the fathers of the modern day Christian science movement. Now, the other people were the Stoics, and they were completely different. The Stoics believed that everything was God, that God was a spirit, and that spirit was everywhere 
and in everything. They also believed that everything was the will of God, good and bad. And whatever happened just happened, and that there was no point in caring about it or worrying about it. It is from this that we get the word stoical. You've heard of that word before. So these are the philosophies that Paul meets head on when he arrives in Athens. The discussion he starts, it takes place in the marketplace, and then it moves up to the Areopagus, where the elite thinking people would meet and debate. So that's the background. Paul is in this debating arena, if you like, surrounded by all these intellectual and philosophers, and also surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of idols. That's the background that goes on, and Paul is speaking into that situation. That text that was read for us, that's the situation he's speaking into. And Paul starts out by saying this, and I'm going to paraphrase it very simply. He said, I notice, I notice you guys are very religious. In fact, as I was heading up here today, I noticed that there's statues of all sorts of gods. But I also noticed that you have a statue to what you call the unknown god. Now, bear in mind, we reckon there's 30,000 statues within the streets and houses and temples of Athens. But even with all those statues, they still were worried they might have left one out. So what they do is they erect a monument, and they say, this one's for the god that we don't yet know about. We'll just have this one just to be in the safe side. So Paul picks on that and said, that god, the unknown god, That's the God I'm going to talk to you about today. Let me tell you about the God that you don't even know yet. He starts by saying, this unknown God, he's the creator God, and he's the creator of everything. Then he continues by saying that he's also the judge, and he's the savior of the world. This is the gospel he's saying. But please note, at the point when he discloses that the unknown God is also the judge of mankind, he also introduces the resurrection of Jesus. He tells them that Jesus Christ, the creator God's son, died and rose again. And if people refuse to recognize that, then the creator God will judge them. So that's the message within the context of what he was faced in the city of Athens. And those people, they listen to him, but it's very interesting how they respond Interesting because they only react negatively to one part of the message. They don't react to the fact that there is some God they don't know because they've acknowledged that. They've already built a statue to testify to that effect. Furthermore, they don't react again to the part of the message that said, this God was the creator. He's the creator of everything. They acknowledge that fact also. They didn't even react negatively to the fact that the unknown God is the God who governs the world. They didn't react negatively to anything Paul said until he mentions the resurrection. And at this point they go, whoa, wait a minute, what is this babbler talking about? That's a really contemporary sort of version and phrase, isn't it? What is this babbler talking about, they say. Let's just dial back a minute. If we summarize Paul's message to this point, it would be this. God is creator. God is judge. God is savior in Christ. Christ died, and since Christ arose from the dead, 
he must either be your saviour or your judge. That's the message I bring, Paul says, and that's the message you must respond to today. And it's the reaction to that message that, he goes up, that the passage goes on to tell about. It's interesting because there are several different reactions. Verse 32 says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, well, we want to hear you again on this subject. So when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. The first reaction of some of those listening was to sneer. So they deny it, but they go beyond denial. They mock it. They mock the idea of the resurrection, and it says they sneer at it. Some translations use the term they ridiculed him, which is correct. But it's worth noting that this word, regardless of whether it's translated or sneered or ridiculed, what it suggests is they don't just do that once. They do it repeatedly. They do it over and over again. You see, what they could not contemplate, even for a second, was that there might be a physical resurrection for anybody, for for Christ, God's Son, or for anybody else. The idea that someone might die, and someone might have died and come back from beyond death, from beyond the veil of death, was impossible for them to imagine. And it is that claim, that resurrection claim, that they are reacting against. And they're reacting against by saying this is absurd, and they're sneering at it. The point I want to make today is that even now, when people hear the message of Christ, when often it is the point when they hear that Christ rose from the dead, then they react exactly the same way as those did people did 2,000 years ago. Some deny it. They just don't believe it. They won't read the Bible. They won't research what the Bible says. They won't try and find out if it's true. They'll even say, oh, the Bible doesn't say that at all. But they don't accept it. But these people in Acts 17, they took that position, but they went beyond that. They didn't just deny the the resurrection, they derided it. They ridiculed it. They sneered at it and they mocked it. And still today, people do that when we talk to them about the resurrection of Christ. So what I simply want to point out this morning is that is one of the reactions that for 2,000 years people have given to the message of Christ and his death and resurrection for sin. They deny it, and then they ridicule it. However, that same verse, if we look at it again, verse 32, says, but others said, we want to hear again on this subject. So there's a second reaction. The second group didn't deny it. They didn't deride it. They just said, we don't want to make a decision on this right now. We want to delay our decision. The first group made an instant decision to deny and to ridicule the message, but the second group say, let's delay this. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about it later. It's commonly thought that the second group was the Stoics and the first group was the Epicureans. So it's the Stoics who make the second comment and say, let's talk about it later. However, if we look later, if you were to turn to your Bible in your own time in chapter 18, we see that Paul soon departs Athens and goes on to Corinth, and he never meets these people again. 
So by delaying, they miss their chance. I think we all know that when we delay something, particularly something in terms of thought or this sort of decision-making, we often just don't come back to it and we don't consider it again. As a matter of fact, if we delay something, it's very unlikely we'll ever come back to it and discuss it again. And I think that's true today, just as it was then. Most people, when it comes to making decisions like this, like to procrastinate. One of these days, I'm going, to, I'm going to sort my procrastination problem out. Tomorrow is usually my busiest day of the week. I've got more of these. God put me on earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now, I'm so far behind, I'll probably never die. Shall I inflict another one on you? The United Kingdom Procrastinators Club announced that this week is now officially last week. <laughs> I tried to join that club once, but they threw me out when I paid my membership on time. <laughs> we leave it at that. The point is, we're all inclined to procrastinate. We're all inclined to delay. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever told a salesman you want to think about it? Yeah? Have you ever been a salesman and someone tell you, tells you they want to think about it? I have. How did that work out for you, if that was you? For the most part, it's just a polite way of people saying no. Saying I want to think about it means I don't really want to think about it. Here's the problem with putting decisions off. It rarely means that you revisit them. Do you know that every time, it's reckoned that every time a new invention comes along that changes the world, people believe that at least 10 people have already thought about that invention in great detail, but they only thought about it. They didn't get around to doing anything about it. When I was about 11 years old, a guy who I lived at number one, the chap who lived at number five, who's the same age as me, David Heal, his dad was putting down floorboards in his house, and he had, the floorboards were outside, and they were offcuts, and there was a piece about that long, and he had a long paved drive, probably about the length of this church, and uh, he had a, an older sister who had some skates. You remember the ones with the leather straps? Do you remember those? And they were in two parts. And we took one of his sister's skates and we screwed, we took the, the skateboard and we screwed the front to one part. This is 1971 and we screwed the front part of the skate to the front of one, the pieces of the, of the leftover floorboard and the back part to the other. And we attached them. And all day we went up and down his path on what we called the board skate. <laughs> Missed our chance there, didn't we? I've heard lots of stories like that about people having ideas and not following through, and I clearly did it myself. It was probably David's idea. His dad was a scientist, and he thought a lot that way. Sometimes it only, it's only an idea that goes by, or sometimes a delay like that can cost people money. But sometimes delaying a decision like that is really, really significant and important. So we see there were two reactions Detailed force in verse 32. Firstly, to deny and to deride. To deny and mock. Or the second decision was to delay. But verse 34 
says this, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So there's a third reaction to that message. They said, we want to follow Paul's teaching, and they believed. It intrigues me that this word in the modern translation, translated as follow or followers, it misses the real sense of what the original text says, because it's literally translated as that some of them clung to Paul and his teaching. And we know from the text what Paul said to the people. He said two things. He told them about Jesus, and he told them about the resurrection. What do you, what do you friends, believe about the claims of Jesus? What is your reaction to who Jesus is and who he said he was? Well, you can have several options. You might believe Jesus was just a legend, You might believe he never existed. They're just stories. He's just a legend. You might believe he was a liar. The things he said about himself were not true. You might even believe that he was a lunatic. He was another in an endless line of those throughout history who have claimed to be God. Or you might believe he was Lord. For those who say, I think Jesus was just a legend... Well, I would just respond simply by saying there's an abundance of textual and archaeological evidence to say existed, but also this. Every reputable historian, Christian, Jewish, and atheist who have ever examined the evidence have all concluded that Jesus existed, that he was not just a legend. Those who might say, well, he was a liar. Why would a liar be prepared to die for a false claim? Why would you undergo such a tortuous death if you could have simply walked away from that situation, could walked away from those consequences by simply retracting your words and saying they weren't true, I'm not who I'm claiming to be? And for those who say he was a madman, how then did he engage the world's greatest intellectual philosophers, all the religious leaders and thinkers of his day? How did a deranged, how did a mentally ill man create a worldview that has stood now nearly 2,000 years of analysis and that is accepted worldwide today at some degree by nearly a third of the world's population? How could the ramblings of a madman change millions of people's lives? Remember, Christ himself said he is Lord and God, and all the evidence supports that claim. And the claim was that he was the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and our Savior who died as a substitute for us and our sin. One more thing Paul says to those philosophers And we can be certain of this because the text says it absolutely for us. It says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the only reason we're here this morning, friends. He arose from the dead. That, my friends, is true, and that is foundationally important to our faith. 
Anybody can say, I'm going to die for your sins. Anybody can say it. The legend could say it. The liar could claim it. The lunatic can say he's going to do it. They can all say it. But how can we know that it's true? Only by doing it do we know it's true. Jesus said, I'm going to die in your place for your sins. And the way you will know that that's happened, only the way you will know that you are forgiven is because I will rise from the dead. No one else in history before or since will ever do that. The Bible proclaims the resurrection of Christ from cover to cover. And had he not come back from the dead, then Christianity would be meaningless. Paul himself wrote this when he said, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sin. We are still lost in our sin. So friends, every one of us this morning has a decision to make. Some may have made that decision 60 years ago. Some may have made it 60 minutes ago. Some have yet to make it. But every one of us has a decision to make. Is how do you respond to the resurrection of Christ? Are you going to deny it and deride it? Are you going to delay it because procrastination leads to death? Or are you going to depend on it? Are you going to say, I depend on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to make me right with God and give me the gift of eternal life? I hope it's not a surprise to anyone this morning. I hope it's not a shock this morning if I say, you know what, folks, we're all going to die. Can we at least agree on that this morning? According to this book, every one of us will die and will stand before God, and God is going to consider how each one of us responded to that particular truth. You have an option on how you might respond on that day. You can say, look what I did. Look at my religious activity. Or you can say, Father God, look what your son Jesus did. You can point to your sin and say, look what he did on my behalf. He was my substitute. He died in my place for the sins that I committed. You can depend on something you did. You can depend on something he did. You can hand it over and say, look at what Jesus did for me. Finally, I want you to notice that every single one of those people in Athens made a decision that day. Every one of them. Some decided to deny it and mock it. Some decided to delay it, but that delay was still a decision. But some decided to depend on it. Two of those three groups made the wrong decision, and one of those groups made the right decision. Forgive me, but I'm going to speak really frankly to everyone this morning. None of us really know how long we've got. I believe most of us know someone or will know someone who is unexpected drop dead at some point in their life without warning. I'm just being realistic with you, beloved. If you're going to delay, if you think I'm going to wait until the 11th hour to make that decision, then you better make sure the Lord doesn't call you home at 10.59. If you haven't made that decision, we all need to make it, and we need to make it today. That's as straightforward as I can put it. 
For those of you out there, if there's anybody out there who knows the exact date and the exact moment that they're going to die, then I suppose you can delay it to the last few minutes if you wish. But for the rest of us, for those of us who don't know that exact date and that exact moment, we had better decide and we had better decide today.